Part five of Dam, a Book of Calumny. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Dam, a Book of Calumny by H. L. Mencken. Part five. Forty one. Free will. Free will, it appears, is still a Christian dogma. Without it, the cruelties of God would strain faith to the breaking point. But outside the fold, it is gradually falling into decay. Such men of science as George W. Crile and Jacques Loeb have dealt its staggering blows, and among laymen of acquiring mind, it seems to be giving way to an apologetic sort of determinism. A determinism, one may say, tempered by defective observation. The late Mark Twain, in his secret heart, was such a determinist. In his What is Man, you will find him at his farewells to libertarianism. The vast majority of our acts, he argues, are determined. But there remains a residuum of free choices. Here we stand free of compulsion and face a pair or more of alternatives, and are free to go this way or that. A pillow for free will to fall upon, but one loaded with disconcerting brickbats. Where the occupants of this last trench of libertarianism err is in their assumption that the pulls of their antagonistic impulses are exactly equal that the individual is absolutely free to choose which one he will yield to. Such freedom in practice is never encountered. When an individual confronts alternatives, it is not alone his volition that chooses between them, but also his environment, his inherited prejudices, his race, his color, his condition of servitude. I may kiss a girl, or I may not kiss her. But surely it would be absurd to say that I am, in any true sense, a free agent in the matter. The world has even put my helplessness into a proverb. It says that my decision and act depend upon the time, the place, and even, to some extent, upon the girl. Examples might be multiplied ad infinitum. I can scarcely remember performing a wholly voluntary act. My whole life, as I look back upon it, seems to be a long series of inexplicable accidents, not only quite unavoidable, but even quite unintelligible. Its history is the history of the reactions of my personality to my environment, of my behavior before external stimuli. I have been no more responsible for that personality than I have been for that environment. To say that I can change the former by a voluntary effort is as ridiculous as to say that I can modify the curvature of the lenses of my eyes. I know, because I have often tried to change it, and always failed. Nevertheless, it has changed. I am not the same man I was in the last century. But the gratifying improvements so plainly visible are surely not to be credited to me. All of them came from without. Or from unplumbable and uncontrollable depths within. 
The more the matter is examined, the more the residuum of free will shrinks and shrinks, until in the end it is almost impossible to find it. A great many men, of course, looking at themselves, see it as something very large. They slap their chests and call themselves free agents, and demand that God reward them for their virtue. But these fellows are simply idiotic egoists, devoid of a critical sense. They mistake the acts of God for their own acts. Of such sort are the coxcombs who boast about wooing and winning their wives. They are brothers to the fox who boasted that he had made the hounds run. The throwing overboard of free will is commonly denounced on the ground that it subverts morality and makes of religion a mocking. Such pious objections, of course, are foreign to logic. But nevertheless, it may be well to give a glance to this one. It is based upon the fallacious hypothesis that the determinist escapes, or hopes to escape, the consequences of his acts. Nothing could be more untrue. Consequences follow acts just as relentlessly if the latter be involuntary as if they be voluntary. If I rob a bank of my free choice or in response to some unfathomable inner necessity, it is all one. I will go to the same jail. Conscripts in war are killed just as often as volunteers. Men who are tracked down and shanghaied by their wives have just as hard a time of it as men who walk fatuously into the trap by formally proposing. Even on the ghostly side, determinism does not do much damage to theology. It is no harder to believe that a man will be damned for his involuntary acts than it is to believe that he will be damned for his voluntary acts. For even the supposition that he is wholly free does not dispose of the massive fact that God made him as he is, and that God could have made him a saint if he had so desired. To deny this is to flout omnipotence, a crime at which, as I have often said, I balk. But here I begin to fear that I wade too far into the hot waters of the sacred sciences, and that I had better retire before I lose my hide. This prudent retirement is purely deterministic. I do not ascribe it to my own sagacity. I ascribe it wholly to that singular kindness which fate always shows me. If I were free, I'd probably keep on, and then regret it afterward. 42. Quid est veritas? All great religions, in order to escape absurdity, have to admit a dilution of agnosticism. It is only the savage, whether of the African bush or the American gospel tent, who pretends to know the will and intent of God exactly and completely. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, asked Paul of the Romans? How unsearchable are his judgment, and his ways past finding out. It is the glory of God, said Solomon, to conceal a thing. Clouds and darkness, said David, are around him. No man, said the preacher, can find out the work of God. 
The difference between religions is a difference in their relative content of agnosticism. The most satisfying and ecstatic faith is almost purely agnostic. It trusts absolutely without professing to know it all. 43. The Doubter's Reward Despite the common delusion to the contrary, the philosophy of doubt is far more comforting than that of hope. The doubter escapes the worst penalty of the man of hope. He is never disappointed and hence never indignant. The inexplicable and irremediable may interest him, but they do not enrage him, or, I may add, fool him. This immunity is worth all the dubious assurances ever foisted upon man. It is pragmatically impregnable. Moreover, it makes for tolerance and sympathy. The doubter does not hate his opponents. He sympathizes with them. In the end, he may even come to sympathize with God. The old idea of fatherhood here submerges in a new idea of brotherhood. God, too, is beset by limitations, difficulties, broken hopes. Is it disconcerting to think of him thus? Well, is it any the less disconcerting to think of him as able to ease and answer, and yet failing? But he that doubteth, damnatus est, at once the penalty of doubt, and its proof, excuse, and genesis. 44. Before the Altar a salient objection to the prevailing religious ceremonial lies in the attitudes of abasement that it enforces upon the faithful. A man would be thought a slimy and knavish fellow if he approached any human judge or potentiate in the manner provided for approaching the Lord God. It is an etiquette that involves loss of self-respect, and hence it cannot be pleasing to its object. For one cannot think of the Lord God as sacrificing decent feelings to mere vanity. This notion of abasement, like most of the other ideas that are general in the world, is obviously the invention of small and ignoble men. It is the pollution of theology by the sclav moral. 45. The Mask Ritual is to religion what the music of an opera is to the libretto, ostensibly a means of interpretation, but actually a means of concealment. The Presbyterians made the mistake of keeping the doctrine of infant damnation in plain words. As enlightenment grew in the world, intelligence and prudery revolted against it, and so it had to be abandoned. Had it been set to music, it would have survived, uncomprehended, unsuspected, and unchallenged. 46. Pia Veneziani, 
Poi Christiani. I have spoken of the possibility that God, too, may suffer from a finite intelligence, and so know the bitter sting of disappointment and defeat. Here I yielded something to politeness. The thing is not only possible but obvious. Like man, God is deceived by appearances and probabilities. He makes calculations that do not work out. He falls into specious assumptions. For example, he assumed that Adam and Eve would obey the law in the garden. Again, he assumed that the appalling lesson of the flood would make men better. Yet again, he assumed that men would always put religion in first place among their concerns, that it would be eternally possible to reach and influence them through it. This last assumption was the most erroneous of them all. The truth is that the generality of men have long since ceased to take religion seriously. When we encounter one who still does so, he seems eccentric, almost feeble-minded, or, more commonly, a rogue who has been deluded by his own hypocrisy. Even men who are professionally religious, and who thus have far more incentive to stick to religion than the rest of us, nearly always throw it overboard at the first serious temptation. During the past four years, for example, Christianity has been in combat with patriotism all over Christendom. Which has prevailed? How many gentlemen of God, having to choose between Christ and Patriae, have actually chosen Christ? 47. Off again, on again. The ostensible object of the Reformation which lately reached its fourth centenary, was to purge the church of imbecilities. That object was accomplished. The church shook them off. But imbecilities make an irresistible appeal to man. He inevitably tries to preserve them by cloaking them with religious sanctions. The result is Protestantism. 48. Theology the notion that theology is a dull subject is one of the strangest illusions of a stupid and uncritical age. The truth is that some of the most engrossing books ever written in the world are full of it. For example, the Gospel according to St. Luke. For example, Nietzsche's Der Antichrist. For example, Mark Twain's What is Man? St. Augustine's Confessions? Heckel's The Riddle of the Universe, and Huxley's Essays. How indeed could a thing be dull that has sent hundreds of thousands of men, the very best and the very worst of the race, to the gallows and the stake, and made and broken dynasties, and inspired the greatest of human hopes and enterprises, and embroiled whole continents in war? No. Theology is not a soporific. The reason it so often seems so is that its public exposition has chiefly fallen in these later days 
into the hands of a sect of intellectual castrati who begin by mistaking it for a sub-department of etiquette and then proceed to anoint it with butter, rose water, and talcum powder. Whenever a first-rate intellect tackles it, as in the case of Huxley, or in that of Leo the Thirteenth, it at once takes on all the sinister fascination it had in Luther's day. 49. Exempli Gratia do I let the poor suffer, and consign them, as old Friedrich used to say, to statistics and the devil? Well, so does God. End of part five.